Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Actually, we're going to be turning in our Bibles to several passages um, in uh, both Luke, also in Isaiah. So if you're familiar with where Isaiah is, you might want to hold your finger there. And also in the Gospel of John. Um, so um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some black Bibles in front of you. There is nothing profound that I'm going to say, but when I read God's Word, that's where the Holy Spirit works. And that's what we want to hear. And um, I was kind of sharing my message with Kim this last night, and she was going, wow, we're turning to a lot of passages, a lot of God's Word. And I'm like, yeah, uh, little of me and more of Him that we want to hear. So we want to hear from God's Word. Before I start, I do want to say that you know, two weeks ago, I was preaching on the triumphal entry of Christ. And I had a brother uh, here in this congregation, a brother in Christ, come to me and say, man, I, he, had, he said, there was an offense I took up in something that you said. And um, so we talked about it. And it wasn't what I said, it was how I delivered it. So, and, and, and my interpretation of the passage, we disagreed on, and that's okay. The one thing that we do agree on is that there's only one proper interpretation of Scripture. And so as brothers in Christ, as sisters in Christ, we could come together and we can be in pursuit of knowing what that one truth is. But it was my delivery of what I said that had caused an offense for a brother, which basically had just he'd shut down everything. You know, after, you know, when you, get, you know what it's like when you get an offense, you just shut everything down. And so... Um, and so I apologize um, to him. You know, one, as it relates to our, the interpretation, one of us could be right, both of us could be wrong, uh, but both of us can't be right. Again, there's only one proper interpretation of Scripture. I was talking to Cameron after that, and I said, hey, Cameron, um, give me some feedback. And he goes, you know, Dad, it's okay. Cameron's my son, if you don't know. I have four sons, three through three by marriage. And so any of my sons, I am... They come to me and they rebuke me, and I and and I am so pleased that they can that they do that. But anyway, Cameron goes, you know, Dad, you can say something with conviction, what you believe you should say with conviction, but it should always be mixed with the appropriate amount of grace. And he said, you just got your mixture wrong. And I said, thank you, son. That was that was good. That was a good encouragement. Some wise words from my son to me. Isn't that great? Um, just so you, just so you know, and I know you know this, and as a reminder um, to you, we have as a preach team, we have so several guys that come up and preach, and we get together every Saturday. That preach team is under the authority of three elders: so myself, uh, Pat Peters, Dave. I was just looking for Dave, and then Dave Wolf. Um, so we get together and we go through the Word together um, each Saturday, and so there is an accountability there. We need to know that. Our text again is in Luke um, chapter 20. My hope is that as I present God's word to you, that this week you'll go back and look at some of these passages that we look at. Parents, it's important for you as, 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 as we're proclaiming the word um, that you're turning your Bibles to these passages as well. Your children need to see um, you, do, you doing that. And as Pat said, our goal as we come together is to look at God's word we're hearers, right? But also to be changed by God's word, to be doers. So let's take a moment, and just a moment, and ask the Lord to do that this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you and to open your word and to be changed by your word. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ here locally in Kennesaw, Ackworth, Woodstock, in Georgia, in the United States, and then across the world as they come together to worship the person of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through my heart and my mind, that the words that I speak would be words that are encouraging and uplifting. And, and Father, that your word, that your Holy Spirit would work through your word to change us. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, one day, 
as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or what is, or what is it that gave, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, that is John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, hmm. If we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? And if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they, that is the people, are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, Ah, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, that they feared the people. Here's the main point of the passage. And, and um, if, you, if you, there are some handouts on the back. Actually, they're all gone. Wow, that is so nice. Um, if, um, for your notes, um, if you're taking notes, here's the main point of the passage. There is no neutral ground with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is either the cornerstone or he is the stone that crushes. But he looked directly at them, verse 17, and said, what then is this that is written? And he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I saw a quote earlier, earlier this week from Steve Lawson. He said this, he said, Every knee will bow to Jesus, either as Lord and Savior in this life, or as prosecutor and judge in the life to come. But every knee will bow. So the context that we're in here in Luke 20 this morning is the Passover celebration. We, um, we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus in chapter 19. And then we see Jesus cleansing the temple. Matt preached on Jesus cleansing of the temple. And the main point was that the temple of God is the place of true worship. And so Jesus cleanses the temple because they had turned it into a place of commerce and not a place of worship. And Jesus is preaching and he's teaching now here in Jerusalem. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they'd been keeping an eye on Jesus really ever since the baptism of John, since, since um, the, and really the very beginning of Christ's ministry. Now Christ comes, he comes into Jerusalem, and um, they really take offense. He comes right into their front door, almost as if he was coming into their 
vineyard. But really the vineyard belongs to God. There's been 400 years of silence since God has spoken to the nation of Israel. And I think that was just fine with the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel. They kind of had gotten used to the way things were for them. They had turned Jerusalem and the temple of God into just a place of self-worship. And they had beaten the messengers that God had sent them and cast them out. And now it is the kingdom of self-righteousness, the kingdom of man, um, that they have coordinated. But the allegory of John the Baptist is so great. You brood of vipers, John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Doesn't that sound just like the passage we just read? I mean, the ministry of Christ is bookended by this warning to the nation of Israel. Bear fruit. Bear fruits, John says. Don't be arrogant. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God doesn't need you. John says he can raise up children for Abraham from these very stones. And God can and will accomplish his will without you. But your rejection of God has consequences. That's the warning. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And so we see this theme throughout the history of Israel. A theme of rejecting. Rejecting God. Rejecting him and his word. And so the Pharisees come to him, the rulers, the scribes, and say, Who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do these things? You know, throughout, as we've been studying throughout Luke, we find, as we said, we find the Pharisees and we find the rulers are always following Jesus. And what they're doing is they're always they're asking him questions, right? But none of them are sincere. They're always asking the question to try to trap Jesus in a way that's going to turn the people away from him. That's what they're after. You know, if Jesus was just proclaiming the kingdom of God and going from town to town and synagogue to synagogue and no one was following him, they'd have been okay with that. That would have been fine. But as he heals the lame, as he casts out demons and all of his work, there's this great following. That's what troubled them. And what they wanted was to trap Jesus into saying something that would turn the people on Jesus, or at least to create division among the people that are following him. And so now in our passage, in the first few, first few verses, as they questioned his authority, Jesus turns the tables on them. I love it. He puts the question back to them that puts them in a place that they wanted Jesus to be in. They say, Jesus says this. So he asks this question. He says, they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, let me ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Whose authority? Heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. That's what they wanted. They wanted the people to turn on Jesus and stone him. But now Jesus has turned the tables and asked them a question where they're at that spot. Where they're saying, oh, if we can't, if we say from heaven, that's the right answer. The authority that John had the authority that Jesus preaches is the authority from heaven, from God himself, from the God of Israel. We can't say that. Boy, we can't say from man. Because if we say from man, the people who believe that, Jesus, that, that John the Baptist was a prophet from God, from heaven, they'll stone us. So now they're in a very 
predicament. They can't answer the question. And so they say, and so they say, well, we don't know. Um, so they answered, and, and they and, and that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Of course, this is not the first time that, that the authority of Christ has been has been questioned. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John. So just one gospel over. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 30 through 46. I told you we're going to be reading some scripture this morning, right? John 5. Are you turning to John 5? John 5. Now understand this as I as I read this to you. They, the, they are questioning here, just to put it in context, Jesus has healed the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, right? They're in Jerusalem. And heals on the Sabbath. They're all upset about this. And they're asking him by what authority he's doing these things. Also know that they are, they also know that a truth claim has to be validated by more than one witness. You can't just be your own witness. It has to be, a truth claim has to be validated and established by multiple witnesses. And so here's what Jesus says. Read, read with me, starting picking up in verse 30. Um, um, I can do nothing, Jesus says, on my own. As, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Self-testimony doesn't work. You need more than that. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Three testimonies, three testimonies that John gives to validate, I'm sorry, that Jesus gives to validate the authority on which he does these things. There's the witness of John the Baptist. There's the witness of the works that I'm doing. Jesus has authority over all of nature. He calms a storm. He has authority over the spirit world. He casts out demons. He has authority over sickness. He heals the sick, the lame, the blind, those with leprosy. He has authority over life and death. He resurrects those who are dead. And then there's the witness of Scripture. Jesus says, you just read the scriptures, you would know. You would know. They all speak and point to him. And so Jesus gives a parable. Now Jesus comes to a parable. And he answers the question of authority. But there's one other thing he does in his, in his parable. And that is, he proclaims the consequences of those who reject 
his authority. Now, not all parables are understood by their audiences. You remember we were looking at the parable of the sower, right? That the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, will you explain this to us? you explain this? But here in this parable, they're hearing a parable that has a ring of familiarity to them. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah. These are words that would have been recited in their synagogues as they go from Sabbath to Sabbath, from synagogue to synagogue. And if you were there, if you were in the synagogue, they would be opening up the scripture and reading from their scriptures. And Isaiah was one that would have been read over and over again. If you were a young person, you would have grown up hearing these very words. So to give context so that we can kind of understand, okay, here's the context in which they're hearing the parable that Jesus is telling them. Turn in your Bibles again to Isaiah chapter 5. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Imagine yourself being in one of those synagogues. And the rule of leaders of the synagogue are reading in Isaiah. Here's some things before I read it. Here's some, and I know it's a lengthy passage, but before I read it, here's some things I want you to look for. Notice this about the vineyard. The vineyard is not barren, but in fact yields wild grapes. It's not the absence of obedience, but the very presence of willful disobedience. The expected fruit, look for this, the expected fruit is the fruit of obedience, justice, and righteousness. And then note, as I read through Isaiah chapter 5, notice all the times you're going to see therefore. If you you write in your Bibles, I do, I circle therefore. When you hear the word therefore, hear consequences. These are the consequences. Therefore, the therefores. And also notice that God is exalted in His justice, even as He Even as God executes justice and the consequences on Jerusalem, God is exalted in that because God is a just and holy God. Now the prophet Isaiah is going to prophesy six woes. These are woe are you, guilty are you, he will say. And and, um, I don't want to interrupt as I read through this, but here, look look for these. There's the woe of self-enrichment. They expand their homes and they expand their fields at the expense of their neighbors, only to find themselves all alone and not even able to manage the crops that are there. Remember, we used to have a little, a little um, story that we'd tell our kids, all mine, bunny. Do you remember that? Kaylee, where are you, Kaylee? All mine, bunny. All mine. The bunny that collected all its toys and they had no friends. All mine. All mine. The sin of self-enrichment. Then there's the sin of, self-indulge, of self-indulgence. No interest in the works of works that glorify God. And then there's the third one will be the sin of, of self-deception. Giving lip service only to saying, oh God, we just want to hear from you. Just come tell us what we need to do. All while sinning. Carrying sin. Drawing it like it's on a wagon behind him. Dragging their sin behind him. The fourth woe, they deny absolute truth. They call evil good and good evil. The woe of self-righteous, they're wise in their own eyes. And the woe, and the woe of practicing injustice. And then also notice finally in God's judgment, he calls for the nations far away to come and destroy Israel. All right, are you ready? So let's look at this. This is the context at which they're hearing the parable that Jesus tells. Jesus tells a very simple parable, but this is what, this is what should be going through their mind. Um, Isaiah chapter 50. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My love, beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there's no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate. Large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. And a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning. That they may run after strong drink. You tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They, They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe number three, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let it. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. And let it come, that we may know it. Lip service, just lip service. Woe number four. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, number five, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness And their blossom go up like dust. For, this is what they have done. For, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. And have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, consequence, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and he struck them. And the mountains quaked, and, and their corpse were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away, and whistle for them to the ends of the earth. So with, wish I could whistle right now. God is whistling for the nations, the enemies of Israel to come. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. 
They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress. And the light is darkness by its clouds. And so the northern kingdom of Israel, if you know, if you remember, if you're familiar with the history, the northern kingdom is swept away by the Assyrian army. The southern kingdom, the southern kingdom will be taken away by the Babylonians. You know, as we look, turn back to our text, as we look back at Luke 20, you can't help but ask yourself, did Israel learn nothing from her past? Did she learn nothing? In a speech in 1948, Winston Churchill said this. He paraphrased um, Spanish philosopher, philosopher George um, Santiana. He said this, and Winston Churchill said this. He said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. If there were consequences to rejecting the word brought to them by the prophets, and what were those consequences? They were carried away by their enemies, taken away. What will be the consequences when they reject the Son? The vineyard will be taken away from. And so, we have our parable. We have the landowner, the man. Um, This is the Lord of hosts. From Isaiah 5, we saw, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So the vineyard owner, the landowner, is the Lord of hosts. And the vineyard, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God chose the nation of Israel as a people to display His holiness for God's glory among all the nations of the people. Isaiah 42, 6-8 says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. The fruit of the vineyard. What is the fruit of the vineyard? The fruit of the vineyard is obedience to the word of God as expressed in justice and in righteousness. Again, in Isaiah 5, we read, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice. Those were the grapes. Those were the grapes. And behold, bloodshed, the wild grapes. He looked for righteousness. Righteousness. Those were the grapes. But behold, an outcry. Those were the wild grapes. And then then in verse 24 of Isaiah 5, for they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy so the, so the fruit of the vineyard is obedience, as expressed in justice and righteousness. That was God was looking for, as they displayed his glory to the nations around them. The servants, the servants are the messengers of God, the prophets of old, who proclaim God's word. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah says this, um, um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. The law hadn't even been given when he brought them out of of Egypt. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsel and stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backwards, And not forwards. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day. And yet they did not listen to me or incline their ears. But they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. 
So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. The servants, the servants are the prophets that God had persistently sent to the people of Israel. The tenants, the tenants are not the landowners. They are those that have been entrusted with managing the vineyard. They are the leaders of Israel. And the son, the son is Jesus Christ. And notice how, and Jesus tells this parable, he says he sent the beloved son. Now, if you were, if, if, again, if you were standing there listening, beloved son, your mind would have raced back to Abraham, back to Genesis. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, God said to Abraham. And testing Abraham's faith, asked him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. So, beloved son, they got that. They understood that more than, and possibly they, as they, we know, they were present present at the um, John the Baptist as he was baptizing. They maybe possibly heard the voice from heaven in Luke three, which said, where it says, "And the Holy Spirit descended on him, that is Christ, in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven: You are my beloved son, whom I am well pleased." And so the story goes. As Jesus tells the parable, a man has a vineyard. That's the nation of Israel. He, that is God, has entrusted this vineyard to some tenants. They're to manage the production of the fruit of that vineyard. The owner sends a servant to retrieve some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat this servant and they send him away empty-handed. Now, for most vineyard owners, that would have been enough to provoke a response, some consequences for what the tenants had done. But no, this landowner is merciful and long-suffering. And so the landowner sends a second servant to gather what is rightly his. But the tenants treat the second servant worse than the first. Jesus says they beat him and treat him shamefully. Well, surely that's enough for a long, for a long-suffering, patient landowner to execute justice, but no, yet. The vine owner sends a third servant. Can you feel in Jesus' parable, there's this building, this sense of injustice. You know, when we watch movies, we get, we get this. There's that sense of injustice that builds. He sends a third servant. And really, the sending of the third servant, it alone brings a whole new definition to mercy and long-suffering. It's unimaginable that any, for the hearers of this of this simple parable, it's unimaginable that they would even, that the, the landowner, the vineyard owner, would even consider a third servant, but he does. But they mistreat him, even worse than the second. He's wounded and cast out. So he's not just beaten, he's wounded, open wounds. He's, I mean, his flesh is torn. He's wounded and thrown out. And so the vineyard owner says, I know, I will send my beloved son. And you'd think that there was even an ounce of respect for the landowner, for the vineyard owner. They would listen to him. But what do they do? The tenants see the son coming. They plot to kill him and take title to the vineyard. They execute their plot. They throw the beloved son out of the vineyard and they kill him. Now, by, by now, there should be a sense of outrage among the hearers of this parable. I mean, this is unbelievable in their minds. Just this story, it's building. It's unbelievable. There's a sense of outrage. They were, ready for the vine- they were ready for the vineyard owner to execute judgments after the first servant had been beaten. But by now, there is no room for mercy. And no punishment would be severe enough for these tenants. And so Jesus asked this question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And Jesus pronounces judgment on the nation of Israel. He says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard 
to others. Well, the scribes, the chief priests, they recognized exactly what Jesus was saying. Because in verse 19, they're ready to get rid of him for this. But what he had said to them infuriated them. I mean, take a person puffed up with as much arrogance and pride as you can, and that's where they were standing. Because what do they say to that? They say, surely not. Not just a surely not, but no way. Absolutely no way is this going to happen. And then Jesus says, he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, what is it then that is written? And he looked at them and he said to them, what is it then that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118. And then Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let me make four really short and quick observations from the parable. God is zealous for his glory, for he has created everything for his glory. God has created man for that very purpose. We go back to Eden and we see that. We see in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God, whether it's organic or inorganic. All that God has made, he has made for his glory. Israel was formed as a nation for the glory of God. And he said to me, Isaiah 49, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. God is zealous for his glory. Observation number two, God is patient and long-suffering with the disobedient. But he is not indifferent to disobedience. Hear me on this. I mean, this, there is so much application for us as we play with our sins sometimes and we just think God's long-suffering. There's no, no, no problem here. God is patient and long-suffering with the disobedient, but he is not indifferent to disobedience. His patient has a limit. Isaiah 48, For my sake, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that you may not be cut off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is patient and long-suffering with disobedience. But he is not indifferent to our disobedience. Observation number three. The problem with man, and this has been repeated so many times from this pulpit, but we always need to hear it again, is the heart. The problem with man is his heart, not his ears. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The possession of God's word alone does not make for godliness. The knowledge of God's word alone does not make for godliness. The hearing, the hearing of God's word alone does not make for godliness. James says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like the man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of God, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The problem is not with our hearts. The problem is not with our ears, excuse me. It's with our hearts. Observation number four. God is, God's sovereign plan to glorify himself goes beyond what we could ever imagine. For it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings salvation to all men, both Jew and Gentile alike. 
this thought to the rulers of Israel that God would take away the very vineyard from them was anathema to them. Surely not. There is no way that could happen. But Isaiah, Isaiah 55, Isaiah says, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I'm running out of time. Just a couple quick points of application as we close. You know, as a church family here at Communion Bible Church, we need to ask ourselves, what can we learn from the nation of Israel? God promised Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. The nation, the nation of Israel was to display the holiness of God for all to see, but she refused. Israel was more interested in being like the nations around her than being a light to the nations. And what, was, what has been taken away from Israel has been given to the church. Christ has given the church the great commission. Remember the Great Commission? Jesus said, all authority has been in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go there, he says, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Our, our, our mission statement here at Community Bible Church should be in lockstep with that commission that Jesus has given, and it is. Our mission here is to bring glory to God in obeying the, the commission of His Son, Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations, namely to evangelize the unsaved through the proclamation of the gospel, to establish the saints in the faith, and to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, and then to expand the church locally and abroad, all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, Israel had become arrogant of her identity as children of Abraham. And so she had forgotten the purpose for which God had called her. The thought that a loving God, the thought, the thought of God loving people outside of their Hebrew lineage was incomprehensible to them. What did Jonah do when God said, go to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, and preach repentance? Jonah's like, I'm going the other way. Then when Jonah does go, he's upset with God because they do repent. They had forgotten what God had called them to. Here's a question for us here. Do I have a heart for people who don't know the saving power of Jesus Christ? Or am I a Jonah? Am I fine just going, oh, and I'm going to spend eternity with God. I really don't care about the rest of the world. They can just go to... Really? Is that how you feel about your neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ? We should have a heart for people. And we should have a heart to evangelize. In the world around us, to establish the saints in the church. Temple worship had become a meaningless ritual for the nation of Israel. No longer did the sacrifice of the spotless lamb remind them of the ugliness of their sin and the holiness of God. No longer did they long for a Messiah who would rescue them from their sin. They just wanted rescue from Rome. Even worse, they had made it a business out of it. They had commercialized the worship. Here's a, here's a question that I have to ask myself, and I have been asking myself as I've been going through this. Do I recognize that the true temple of, temple of God is one made without hands, one in which Christ is the cornerstone, a stone upon which every believer is built upon as part of the greater whole? Do I read the you when I open up um, Scripture and I hear the you in the New Testament? Do I recognize that as being a plural you? It's not me. I don't just live on this island. It's just not just Jesus and me. We live together corporately, together for the glory of God. Do I have a passion for the holiness of this local body? And do I recognize that my personal holiness affects the whole? Really, do I desire, do I have a passion for the glory of God? Am I constantly asking myself each day, to prioritize that day around God's glory and not my own glory. Equipping the saints for ministry. That's also part of our mission. Israel rejected God's word and was unwilling to live in obedience to it. 
She mistreated the prophets of God who repeatedly brought the word of God to them and then warned them that rejection would have consequences. Are we faithful in teaching God's word regardless of the discomfort we find in the reproof and correction? It's part of the work that he has in our life, both individually and corporately. Am I willing to devote my time and energy in helping train and equip others? It could be at the nursery, and they're going to be upset with me here shortly if I don't really land this quickly. But the nursery, are we sensitive to the nursery, the children's ministry, the networking of, of other churches around us here, and, and the training, leadership training in faraway places? Patty's just gotten back from Liberia and doing that. That's part of equipping the saints for me. And then expanding. The expansion of the church, both locally, rinse and repeat. Evangelize, establish, equip. Rinse and repeat and do that again and again, both locally and abroad. There is no neutral ground with the person of Jesus Christ. He's either the cornerstone of the temple that he is now building, or he is the stone that let me close with this passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what Peter says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, <clears throat> as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands, for it's, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, both for those, <clears throat> but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen.